Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, face of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day, Mark Kenny here from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. In this episode, we're going to be talking about China, about climate change and about the post-Trump strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific. If you're like me, you'll have thought about these issues a lot in recent years and found yourself lurching from hope to despair. Sometimes you can see a way forward and at other times the forces seem so great and unstoppable as to be beyond us. It's been said that America can always be trusted to do the right thing, but only after it's exhausted all the other options. That pretty much sums up its pandemic debacle right there. On Monday, Kevin Rudd was quoted in a hopeful piece by Nick O'Malley in The Herald discussing the possibility of China stepping up its effort to curb emissions. The Asian colossus is the world's largest offender, accounting for 28% of global greenhouse gas emissions, almost double the US on 15%. You don't have to trust China to do the right thing by the world, for example, as uh, Kevin Rudd says, you just have to trust China to be China. His is part of a growing view that China's leadership recognises that its own interests are threatened by runaway climate volatility and that the Chinese Communist Party's grip on power could be vulnerable to challenge if the problem of unlivable cities is not addressed. Then, of course, there's the geostrategic challenge to US dominance from an expansive China, particularly in this region. To discuss these matters, it's welcome back to Yun Zhang, who is editor of the China Story blog at the Australian National University, and she's also director of China Policy Centre. You may have seen her recently on an episode of Four Corners, one by Stan Grant, in which he did a, a fascinating profile of President Xi Jinping. Welcome back, Yun. Hello. And it's welcome back also to Dr. Graham Smith, who is, among other things, a fellow in the Department of Pacific Affairs at the ANU's Coral Belt School of Asia-Pacific Affairs, a noted China scholar and co-host with Louisa Lim of the Little Red Podcast. Welcome back to you, Graham. Thanks, Mark. 
Yuan, let me start with you. That Four Corners episode on President Xi uh, it was a portrait of an increasingly powerful and I suppose you'd say autocratic style of leadership of a man who is um, really forming China in his own image in a sense. Um, what did you make of the overall picture that came across? I guess I'm asking you to comment on a on a um, a program that you were part of, but that I haven't seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right, because you don't like to uh, you don't like to look at your own interviews. <laughs> yes, yes. If there, if there's a function where it just blacks out when I appear on TV, then I will watch that. <laughs> but nonetheless, I suppose the the logic for doing it uh, for doing the program is that the world is. Uh, increasingly concerned about the direction of things in China, um, the, uh, the the sense uh, the sense really lost some time ago now that it was going to um, liberalise in some sort of way along mm. with its uh, with its economic growth that that seems to have gone by the wayside and so now we're looking at well who is Xi Jinping? He's made himself president for life effectively. Um, he occupies a number of senior positions now that have previously been distributed with with others. So, um, it's it's a concern for the world that, uh, that that we see this direction in China, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So there is a lot of hope for China, um, even when Xi Jinping first came to power. The hope was that China, along with economic liberalization, would also undergo political liberalization, political reform, and turning towards more democratic system of governance. And we're seeing that um, that has not happened. In fact, under Xi Jinping, the reverse has happened. So while Xi Jinping is still going through some economic reform and liberalization, the track on political reform has um not gone through the same um, same same way, gone in the same way. Um, Xi Jinping has become more um, autocratic or more authoritarian. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of comparison between Xi Jinping to Mao Zedong. Um, one of them was about around cult of personality, and there is a lot of language, similar language is being used as well. Um, the helmsman, the people's leader. Um, all this is harkening back to Mao era, which was. Not a great time for China, to be honest. Although for CCP's historical narrative, it was a good time. <laughs> but I think for most people in China's time, um, you know, there was a lot of starvation, a lot of political turmoil. People died uh, from political struggles. Um, so it was not a great time. But now that she seems to be um, imitating a lot of what Mao is doing, at least with regards to color personality. And that is concerning. And for people outside China, it is important that we do understand um, China's leadership, where they came from, and the trend is going. Um, you know, um, when we want to understand the country, it is important that we also understand its domestic imperatives. Yes, particularly when they are so so clearly shaped uh, by by one person or by one party and by one dominant figure within that party, which is Xi Jinping. Graham, there was a real sense when in the earlier days of his leadership that um, that he was going to be a liberaliser. Uh, there was a in in Australia in particular. I remember covering this as a journalist and, and traveling to China with prime ministers and uh, you know being. Uh, in close proximity to him and there was a narrative that was being run that uh, Xi Jinping had spent time in Australia, he had a particular fondness for Tasmania, um, that he was very much a kind of a a, a modern leader 
Um, and that's kind of over recent years just ebbed away quite quite decisively, hasn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, even uh, Yoon's friend Erica Betts uh, was was getting extremely cuddly <laughs> with Xi Jinping in Tasmania and getting very excited about a free trade agreement that uh, Tasmania signed with China. Uh, you won't see Eric talking much about that these days. No. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly it was a big surprise. And, and harking back to the Four Corners program, um, I know Yoon hasn't watched it, but the most interesting thing for me was the pro-regime guest that they had was talking up Xi Jinping as the most powerful man in the world. Now, mm. that's news. Like before it was always like, no, 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 we're a rising power, we're a developing nation. But to have a government-approved guy going on Australian TV and saying, this guy is number one in the world, that's a huge change. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, it used to uh, be about kind of um, all those things you just listed and you know, the, the, the sentence often finished with, you know, China is respectful, uh, that it understands its place, it understands the sovereign rights of other countries. And yet now you don't really see that so much. I mean, it, lip service is paid to it from time to time, but it's all about assertiveness now. It's all about that statement, as you say, uh, the most powerful man in the world. It's quite also quite interesting that um, in recent Xi Jinping speeches, including the one on poverty elimination recently, she has basically airbrushed Deng Xiaoping out of the picture. Mm. And Deng was known as you know the pragmatism kind of person who you know un, uh, support the policy of um, hide your uh, capability and bide your time. And she basically just airbrushed him out of the picture and be. Now it's now China is powerful, um, and also there's a more focus on ideology rather than pragmatism under Deng as well. Yeah, that's a very good point. And do you think that um, this all points, as I guess we all worry it does, towards more decisive action like the regaining of Taiwan, for example? Well, Taiwan is a very tricky issue. Um, certainly, the rhetoric of regaining Taiwan has always been there, even before Xi Jinping. Uh, the CCP has always maintained that Taiwan is part of its uh, territory um, and that it will take whatever is necessary to basically reclaim the territory. Um, so in that sense, it hasn't really changed under Xi. Um, but certainly there are uh, changes happening now. Uh, one of them is that there is a more nationalist sentiment in China, in mainland China, but also on Taiwan, um, people's identity is changing towards Taiwanese identity rather than one that's also Chinese. So I think that will make um, the CCP leadership really think carefully about whether and when they're going to take some actions. But I think war, well, if we're talking about hot war, that's still um, quite unlikely. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not so sure. I mean, I, I was very much unconvinced until recently. Um, but if you look at the language that's being used by the PLA, this talk of America as the strong enemy and explicitly um, talking about America with this very, very loaded term um, that most of Xi's predecessors avoided using. Um, and if you look at their military capability, uh, part of the reason why it wasn't likely in the past is they just weren't able to retake Taiwan. But militarily now, if you talk to analysts, they are capable of doing so mm-hmm. and they could do do so tomorrow um, without too much bother. Um, but 
you know, will they take that step? And and a lot of fairly sane analysts, like, you know, people like Oriana Skyler Mastro and even Gaddy Epstein, although whether Gaddy sane is a question for another time, <laughs> um, are, are saying it will happen within the end of Xi Jinping's open-ended term. Um, and they look at this every day. And I'm kind of like, gosh, you know. I, which which is sort of a time frame of realistically uh, five to ten years, yep. presumably. And and then, of course, the question, I mean, you used the, 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 the term hot war. Um that you know, if it if it's done militarily, if it's done uh, by an invasion, it raises the the question about what the U.S. does. The U.S. Mm. policy is is sort of what strategic ambiguity. Um, I think is uh, one way of describing it. Um, I think Joe Biden has recently s- sort of emphasised that Australia, uh, sorry, that America is uh, remains absolutely committed to its position on Taiwan. Mm. It's just that it's not entirely clear what its position on Taiwan is. Yeah. So well, it's I mean, absolutely committed to this vague position. <laughs> well, it will have to be committed. It's one of the deterrence effects. If you just say that, oh, we're not committed to Taiwan, then you just lose all the deterrence. So, um, of course, it, us United States, at least in public, would have to be committed to um, the defense of Taiwan. Um, whether that will happen, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it, in some ways the the you know the one positive for the world is we have a slightly more predict- predictable U.S. part of the equation, mm. um, and there were signals within the Chinese military that they were half expecting um, Trump to go to war in the latter half of mm. 2020 as kind of a wag the dog scenario mm. to, to yeah. rally the nation around him. Now, look, thankfully he didn't, and he was true to his isolationist um, rhetoric. But the fact that they were seriously getting ready for America to launch some kind of preemptive attack against them um, is 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 incredible, while at the same time, you know, kind of sending very mixed signals about Xinjiang and other places. So, um, you know, I think for the world, the the upside is the US now we can at least say will be fairly predictable. Yes, predictable. Though, uh, although we don't actually know what would mm. what would happen. I mean, if this is a a Xi Jinping ambition within the next five to ten years, and 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 perhaps it's in the earlier part of that of that window. Who knows? I mean, I'm not predicting that, but. But uh, we, we just don't know. He has he has mentioned it a number of times, and this is the thing you, you made the point, Yun, that it's it's long been the the Chinese Communist Party's position to regain Taiwan. That's 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 Chinese policy. Um, but it's the number of times that it's been mentioned, uh, the, the the rhetoric that's surrounding it. It's and as you say, you you mix it together with that that uh, sense of growing nationalism that uh, that that he has uh, you know stoked. Uh, it's um. Potentially a situation that could—it's very conceivable that some sort of attempt is made. I mean, Linda Jacobson had a very convincing argument that they would do everything short of war, which is kind of where we are now. Mm. So, in terms of interfering with Taiwan's media, in terms of um, maybe shutting down the internet or the phone systems, just making life really, really difficult in Taiwan, but not physically invading. So, I, I think that's the scenario we should consider as well. Yeah. So. You mentioned Graham about the sanity that now, you know, comparative sanity that now prevails. Sanity. And they still launch missile strikes with very unclear justification. So no, <laughs> no, 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 sorry. No, sorry. <laughs> I was talking about the sanity uh, on, on the other, on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, so was I. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, on the other side of the Pacific, perhaps. Uh, Anyway, let's go to the question of the US because that is the big sort of change in the dynamic. We have, as you were saying, um, you know, China asserting itself now, 
very much seeing itself as the as the coming power, as the as the new big strategic noise, certainly in this region. Um, and we have a return to a kind of sensible, predictable policy in the US. What do you think that's going to produce in China? Is it is that going to? I mean, I suppose another way of looking at this is: was the sort of madness uh, of of Trump license for China to act more irresponsibly or to or to you know use more irresponsible language? Um, and will the advent of the Biden administration um, bring about more sober relations bilaterally? Do you think? It's hard to see a huge shift. I think both nations are fairly set on their course. Um, so even though we'll see more sanity from the US, um, it doesn't mean China won't still be looking to make incremental gains. Um, and if you look at places like Vietnam, for example, um, where they didn't build an oil rig because of the threat from China, and when the US might have stepped in and said, "No, no, you know, you can, you can, that's your waters, you can drill there," uh, they didn't step in. And that was, you know, Trump, of course, said nothing about this. But these sorts of encroachments on their neighbours, um, I think, are likely to continue. And what the Biden administration does about them um, is is really something to watch because that's where you could, you know, get potential friction or, or a flashpoint. Um, so the Biden administration has a renewed focus on human rights, and that's probably going to annoy China continually. Um it is also continuing with a strategy of competition, especially in technology. So that hasn't changed. What has changed possibly is rhetorics. Um, I think the Biden administration is unlikely to provoke China unnecessarily like what the Trump administration has done. But competition is going to continue. Um, th- there's no um, stopping that, that China and United States are both great powers. And uh, as great powers, they will continue to compete. Um, and that's going to result in some kind of uh, n- some kind of conflict um, of interest, conflict of interest. But Biden is going to, I think, you know, when we talk about return to normal foreign policy, the Biden administration probably will look to its allies and partners and work with them more. Now, on the one hand, um, that's probably a good thing. Uh, to bring more more of a multilateral approach to uh, managing, I guess, what, what Asia, managing Asia, managing China. But on the other hand, it could also mean that um, they are going to look to allies and partners to do more. Yeah. And that could be difficult for some countries. Um, we know that a lot of countries in Asia do not want to choose between China and the United States. In fact, you know, when we're talking about a normal US foreign policy, um, from, from Australia's perspective, that's probably a good thing. But from a lot of um, people in, in the global South, in Asia and in Africa, they see United States not as a really a positive light on the hill as perhaps people in the Western countries do. And they just see there's two great powers and they don't want to be pulled into either of them. So... When they they're in that they try to play off, play them off each other and try, try to gain the maximum leverage from it, uh, but they don't want to be seen to be you know getting too close to either side, and that's probably a wise strategy for those countries as well. One thing I found fascinating about about Trump um, is that he thought. He had this idea that China was something he knew something about. Mm-hmm. Um, and Matt Bevan, uh, who does um, Russia, are you listening? 
had this wonderful tip to go back and look at his 2016 speeches. And in these early rallies, he's doing his, you know, his sort of build the wall, getting the crowd whipped up. Yeah. But then he goes on these massive digressions about China as a currency manipulator, and this is a big problem, and you've all got to listen. And basically, he was losing his base. You know, they're just like, what's he on about? Like, mm-hmm. currency manipulator? What are these words? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and after a while, he just kind of dropped it. But it was interesting at the outset. He, he sort of was very China-focused because he saw this as a problem that, one, he understood, and two, that he thought he could fix. Um, let's take a quick break there, when we come back, let's uh, sort of take this into the, the dimension of climate change because that's obviously going to be a big theatre for um, bilateral relations as well between these two poles, uh, between the US and China. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Now, let's think about climate change. Um, it's it's uh, obviously a major preoccupation of the new Biden administration. It's increasingly a preoccupation right around the world, except in Australia, apparently. <laughs> Not in Australia. <laughs> um, Kevin still cares. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, plenty of people care. Um, but, uh, yes, we do seem to be uh, have, have been dragging the chain a bit on that, uh, and it's going to be fascinating to see what the implications are for Australia of of um, you know, these series of meetings that are going to be happening this year and, and, and how that plays out. But before we get to any of that, just want to, in thinking in terms of what we've been discussing, the relations between uh, the US and China, um, the competition, the areas in which that plays out, in one area, a very important area of climate change, both, it seems, there are signs are looking for some level of cooperation. Now, they did come together and cooperate to some extent, in the lead-up to the 2015 UN climate talks, and that's what unlocked uh, effectively uh, the progress that we saw with the Paris Accord and, and the like. Um, and there is a great uh, emphasis on this from from Biden. He's appointed John Kerry as his um, as his climate envoy, given him cabinet level position. Uh, there's a there's a corresponding Chinese um, uh, appointment now. So I suppose this raises a couple of questions. Will there be progress between these two countries on, on, on climate change? And could climate change as a forum, you know, as a, as a sort of a field for dialogue, also aid in other ways in, in terms of the bilateral relationship? Yun? I think climate change is quite possibly one area where there could be a lot of cooperation between um, China and the United States. It is also one area of competition, but competition is not necessarily a bad thing. 
So we see, for example, um, with regards to vaccine diplomacy, that uh, countries vying for influence is trying to supply vaccines to the global south, to poor countries. And that probably means... um, those countries get earlier access to vaccines. And I think that similar things could happen with climate change. As countries vying for influence, uh, especially in the Pacific, where concerns about climate change is very high, um, that could lead to a lot of, um, uh, for example, technology development, um, helping countries um, to mitigate the effects of climate change. Um, so in that sense, in, com- in climate change, competition may not be necessarily a bad thing. Uh, cooperation is another way uh, it is possible also for two countries to come together and cooperate on climate change. Um, I think, you know, uh, Xi Jinping recently was quite big on um, net zero emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we know that domestically, um, you know, issues with ecology, issues with pollution is high on people's mind. Um, and I think to reflect that, uh, China will be quite willing to do things in an international forum to um, to help their domestic narrative as well. It's really fascinating, Graham, because uh, th- this area, because uh, it's been widely noted that uh, it was a surprise that China announced the net zero by 2060 target. There is some speculation that that will be toughened up at some point. Um uh, and but cynics point out that China is also building coal-fired power stations. The provinces are, 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 are you know, getting money, uh, and they are um, they're being financed to build coal-fired power stations at a great rate of knots. Um, you know, so there's an inconsistency here. Um, but there are also signs that this is coming to an end as well. Uh, a lot of the uh, capacity of the, the you know, there's a, there's a great deal more capacity than there is demand for a lot of the electricity that's being developed here. Uh, there's uh, talk that there's not a lot of due diligence in, in in terms of the financing of these things that they're being done for sort of local political reasons or yep. for economic uh, stimulus reasons rather than necessarily to meet future energy needs. It's quite possible that we're going to see some quite serious kind of um, you know uh, turns in policy in this space domestically in China, and that China will then seek to use that to leverage other countries. Look, I don't think that's there's any doubt about that. And and the reason why you can present both cases is you can easily point to serious data points in both directions, yeah. um, certainly coming out of the five-year plan, which has just been mm. released. Uh, and what the five-year plan does essentially is it really kicks the can down the road um, to the end of the year when the energy sector makes its plans. Now, so the key figure, and, and I guess one that Kevin Rudd will be a bit disappointed in, is the reduction in energy intensity as a proportion of GDP. It used to be 15% and they've actually dropped the target to 13.5%, which is really surprising if you're talking big ambitions in mm. 2060. The current ambitions are actually have actually been reduced compared to 2015, 2020. Now, where that kind of leaves you um, climate change-wise is the problem the party has. If asked to choose between social stability and the environment, it's going to mm. choose social stability every time. And if that means propping up local governments and providing employment, it will continue to do so. That, that's quite right. Um, if they have to choose between economic growth and concerns for the environment, definitely economic growth would um, predominate um, because of the stability it provides to the regime. Um, but in the five-year plan, we are seeing there are some movements. Like the trend is towards more 
um, concerns for the environment. They talk about climate change. Talk, talking about high quality growth rather than just focusing focusing on growth figure, growth growth figure. So the trend is definitely there. But there are. But I think over the next few years, China will try to balance. A bit. It depends on where how the economy is growing is going. It will try to um, uh, it will try to twinkle at the edges and look at the policy settings from there. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I can see you know absolutely I agree with you. Like I think there are things in there like there's a twenty five percent target for renewables making up the energy um, mix by twenty thirty, which is a, is a great signal. Um, the coal body has put a cap on the mm. use of coal. Uh, I think it's and it's still huge. It's like four point two billion tons, but still it's a cap. You know, which is is significant. But on the other side, if you look at the five year plan, there's all this language which continues to talk about coal use. Like it's not. You know, yeah. coal is still in there. It's it's not, and when it's referred to, it's clean coal. This clean coal, that it's not. We're gonna, you know, get rid of it. That's right. I think um, its strategy is trying to grow the green economy rather than necessarily trying to shrink the traditional mm. economy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see how that how well that works. There's not a lot of time, and you know, as the world's largest emitter, I guess the world's looking for more ambition than that. Um, mm. And it's going to be uh, fascinating to see whether. Diplomacy from the U.S. can have any uh, have any effect on on China in that regard. Whether it can whether China can be shamed into or pressured into um, accelerating its ambition over time. Let's let's draw it back now to uh, this region. There's a couple of interesting aspects of this. Um, you know that is China's um, behaviour in the region. Uh, it's um, there, there was a big controversy recently about this. Um, uh, this fishing, what was it, a fishing hub in uh, PNG Island, uh, not far north of, of Australia. Um, what, what did you make of all of that, Graham? Look, um, the fishing hub may happen, um, and paradoxically it's more likely to happen as a result of the Australian government's reaction um, because that has allowed the Chinese company, which is you know hasn't got any experience in Papua New Guinea at all, um, Zhong Hong Fishing Company, um, they in, in many ways have been able to leverage the Australian government's reaction to say, look, um, Chinese government, get behind us and back us. Um, and so paradoxically, our somewhat overreaction to the likelihood of a, a fisheries hub being successfully built in Daru, mm. um, which is the closest we have to just a, an open public health emergency in our region. I mean, they have drug-resistant tuberculosis completely out of control. So if you mm. to have workers there, you would really need, uh, you know, a serious public health campaign for years mm. before it was viable to base workers there because they'll get TB um, and they'll probably die. Uh, you know, right. or, or or have early deaths as a result. So, you know, it's quite possible Zhong Hong hasn't done its due diligence before choosing the site. Uh, but certainly, <laughs> um, Australian government reaction has really you know helped their helped their case in, in domestically. Well, what did the Australian government say? Well, they they sent a delegation um, up to Daru to uh, to basically you know ask, hey, what's going on, guys. Mm. And at that point, um, they'd only signed an MOU, and anyone that's worked in the Pacific knows that these MOUs, you know, literally they just hand them out. You know, they, they, they don't mean anything. They just mean some people sat down together and said, hey, this would be a great idea. Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean any money has been put towards it as yet. Uh, it's almost something you do to show your bosses back home that, hey, I'm here in the Pacific and I'm doing things. Yeah. Uh, so but there was talk <sighs> of a, there's even talk of a, some sort of a city that would go around this, uh, you know, that there would be, you know, Tens of billions of dollars that would be ploughed into yep. infrastructure to make this. Small Are you talking about the proposal from a company that's pretty much have unknown and very small company? Are you 
Is that the one? That's the, the one. That's the ah, one. Okay. $39 billion, I think the uh, final figure was, was, yeah, which yeah. is – I think you know. I don't know if there's a number close enough to zero that I can you know put put on that. But uh, it's it's that one is not going to happen. I mean, it's up there with the hundred billion. But it certainly loan got some. It certainly attracted Islands. some interest, some headlines, and and, oh, and and to your point, it 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 probably increased the profile of the fishing hub project there. Yep, it puts them on the map. Yeah. I think that really just showed more that Australia's anxiety about China rather than anything else, Mm. to be honest, because that um, city project um, was never going to happen. But the fact that someone did a proposal attracts so much media attention, so much anxiety in Australia really says something about Australia. Yeah, and, and from the perspective of the Chinese state, there's, there's no downside to it. I mean, the project might not go ahead, but what it allows them to do is say, look, there's this place in your former colony. Um, you're not investing a cent in it. Mm. It's a complete disaster. We, China, will step in and mm. do what you should have done decades ago. Um, so there's really no downside for them rhetorically. Um, and this know. fits into that overall uh, kind of narrative about the Pacific, about China moving in, about China funding infrastructure projects, projects in Pacific Islands about Australia. You know, this is our backyard rather than China's backyard. How much yeah. is that shaping um, the? How much did that shape the Australian government's response? Even though, as you say, you and it was a um, uh, a pretty sort of uh, unquantified story that one about the the, the the city around the fishing hub and so forth, but. It all fits into that narrative, right? So That's a- right. Unfortunately, what we have um, is basically really bad cases of confirmation bias in a lot of media reporting around China. Um, we're seeing things, you know, there are a lot of stories where China is doing this because it fits with our existing prejudices or understanding of China. It suddenly become very big story, even when it's uh, the credibility is still... Uh, or let's say there's, there's no credibility at all in some of these stories. Um, so that that's very unfortunate. And, you know, when we think about our response to China really should be based on a proper understanding of China's motives, incentives, how their system works, um, our knowledge. We should build better knowledge about China when we think about how to um, confront the challenges of rising China. But instead... A lot of media reporting we're getting is basically rubbish. And how is that showing up in terms of perceptions of China from Australia? And what does that mean for, for example, Chinese Australians? Uh, there's recent work by Lowy Institute did a, a poll on this and it shows some pretty worrying um, circumstances that Chinese Australians are living in. That's right. The Lowy report um, indicated that one in five Chinese Australians uh, were physically attacked or threatened. Um, and the two reasons uh, that were uh, nominated was one, the COVID, um, the fact that a lot of Australians were blaming the pandemic on people of Chinese heritage. And the second one was deterioration in the bilateral relationship. Um, there's, uh, I've heard stories in Canberra, for example, there was a local politician that was of Korean heritage and was yelled at saying that she was a Chinese spy. Um, so there's a sense that the deteriorating bilateral relationship has caused the increasing suspicion of, of Asian people in general, actually, mm. not just the people of Chinese heritage. Um, and the people are basically punishing or putting blame on people of Chinese heritage that is in the community. That is, of course, not very great for social cohesion. Um, 
and is going to lead to a lot of, um, you know, a lot of um, anxiety, anxious, angst among people of Chinese heritage, and especially people, for example, Chinese international students, people that actually not haven't haven't been here for a while. They're going to see these um, rise incidents of racism, and they're probably actually going to feel more nationalistic as well as a result. So that's going to again inflame um, a lot of community tensions. It's an interesting point, isn't it, Graham? That that, that it actually kind of stokes nationalism in a perverse way because obviously you're going to sort of pull within your grouping if you're being attacked for being a member of that grouping. Mm, I mean, that's the irony is the extremes on both sides embolden each other. Um, that's, you know, that, that's the net result in both countries. Um, so it's, it's, it's really kind of sad when you, you know, when you see um, Australian commentators, you know, going on and, uh, you know, really uh, over-egging the whole United Front is everywhere thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, if it's everywhere, oh, gosh, it's even in that school that, that, mm. that, that where they learn Chinese. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it really, it really can go to ridiculous lengths and there, and there are consequences for Australian Chinese, um, you know, citizens. One thing that will have dismayed, I think, the Labor Party is, um, I think it was about two to one, the, the, the Australian Chinese community. Were, oh, yes. so I, I've never seen the Liberal Party's vote above 40%, but uh, it was above 40% in uh, this <laughs> poll. So, uh, you know, the Labor Party has very much lost Chinese Australians. Yeah, yeah. It was strange that if I was a Liberal Party uh, uh, strategist, then I will be thinking, oh, I should get more Chinese immigrants to Australia. That will... Oh, no, I don't know why your friend Eric is so down on it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is kind of ironic when you think about it that uh, this government has presided over. It's not. I'm not saying it's all Australia's fault, but has presided over a deterioration in the bilateral relationship that's probably sharper than any we can remember. Mm. Uh, and and yet you have this this um, approval amongst the Chinese community, two to one, as you say, f- for this government. I mean. There are some pretty staunchly kind of anti-Chinese voices that you hear in in the, the coalition government. Yeah, interestingly, um, there was a recent um, study on WeChat, um, political um, political stories on WeChat, and uh, they've actually found that conservative voices during the last election, that is, conservative voices and um, articles that um, are more supportive of Liberal Party does much better on WeChat. There's more stories of them. I guess one thing is that um, a lot of people uh, in the Chinese Australian communities are socially conservative. Um, I think that's probably one of the reasons. Mm. Um, and of course, while the bilateral relationship is important for you know international relations scholars, um, to the ordinary everyday person, they're more interested in domestic issues. <laughs> Yeah, and was, and the attitudinal component of that survey was fascinating as well. It basically showed, um, you know, Chinese Australians are the perfect Australians because they care less about most issues than <laughs> than, than than average Australians are. The only one I think that they ticked above was less about climate change, less about uh, you know COVID, less about everything, except for refugees. And they were more concerned about refugees than the average Australian. So that's fairly traditional know. amongst refugee groups, though, yes. right, through history, isn't it? That Absolutely, refugee groups have tended to. Sort of want to pull up the ladder for yep, <laughs> that's right. absolutely. What's what's how does it compare with attitudes in the in the in the region um, in the Pacific, but also I suppose uh, in the in the Southeast Asian region uh, about China? Is the is the same? Do you th- is your sense, Graham, that the same kinds of hostilities 
or suspicions about China exist amongst populations in countries in the region? Look, it really depends on historical memories, and this is something that that Yun was alluding to earlier. Mm. If a country has a favourable historic experience with China, um, they'll tend to be favourably disposed. Uh, so Southeast Asia and the Pacific are immediately completely different because Southeast yeah. Asia has been enmeshed with China for well, centuries, whereas the Pacific, in terms of the Chinese state, uh, they've really only met the Chinese state since the 1970s and in earnest since probably 2006. So, uh, so, so is that code, I'm going to be cheeky here and say, is that code for if you haven't known them long, you're more likely to like them? <laughs> well, if you're, a, if you're a Pacific elite, you're I mean, more I'm talking about the state. I'm talking yeah. about the state here rather than Chinese people. Look, absolutely. You know, I mean, you know, the attitudes in Vietnam, the reason they're so entrenched is because they, you know, they date back literally thousands of years, mm-hmm. uh, and then a lot of grievances, there. a lot of historical grievances that aren't going uh, anywhere mm-hmm. on either side. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you're in Tonga, and you know, you've had all very pleasant, if you're part of the royal family or the elite, you've had very pleasant experiences with the Chinese coming along and funding projects, um, then sure, you're likely to like them. But if you're a member of the community who's seen their shops, um, you know, basically taken over by Chinese migrants, you might have a very different mm-hmm. um, view to the elites in your society. So, Graham, uh, one last uh, question. Were you surprised by the SBS decision on, on, on its uh, Chinese news? Yeah, it was It was a surprise in terms of the speed which which they made the decision. Um, they'd only been presented with this report from Safeguard Defenders, um, which is an NGO that is basically looking at people who are, uh, you know, sort of coerced within China, uh, including forced confessions on Chinese television. Um, now, the the um, Ofcom, the so the UK broadcaster Ofcom um, didn't immediately act on these complaints. What they suspended CGTN's license for, um, that's the Chinese broadcaster who broadcasts abroad, what they suspended their license for um, was uh, CGTN being a party-affiliated broadcaster. They didn't act on the safeguard defender complaints immediately, right. uh, whereas SBS within days um, suspended the broadcast of Chinese news on its channel. Um, so certainly the, the the speed with which they acted is impressive. Now, whether that leads to the complete withdrawal mm. is another thing. It's just been suspended. Mm. Um, but, yeah, certainly I was I was very surprised um, how quickly they acted on, on these um, forced confessions. I was also quite surprised by the speed. Um, I remember a few years ago there was a – complaint to SBS broadcast on VMNE's news, I think it was. Um, and SBS responded by putting a warning at before every um, news bulletin broadcast, basically saying SBS does not endorse the content of this broadcast. Yeah. Um, so I thought, okay, if they did that already, uh, I didn't realize, I didn't um, predict that they will act so quickly this time around. Um, but one interesting thing is that those News broadcast, uh, news bulletin, they're half an hour news bulletin um, taken directly from foreign uh, news channels. Uh, they broadcast very early in the morning. Um, in case of this Mandarin news broadcast, it's 6.30. And I'm not sure how many people actually watch them, but I don't think that many people watch them anyway. Right. And from uh, surveys of, uh, you know, uh, Chinese Austra- uh, the use of how, how Chinese Australians receive media, we know that most Mandarin speakers in Australia get their media from social media, such as WeChat, and not that many from TV, and definitely not that many from places like Xinhua or CCTV or CGTM. In fact, if you ask uh, most people uh, who are Mandarin speakers about what they think about these news bulletins, they probably t- tell you it's very, very boring. So I have watched them before. Basically, they're 20 minutes of what Xi Jinping is doing, followed by 10 minutes of what you actually call news. 
Wow. Um, pretty much most people will be just falling asleep watching them. Yeah. They are very, very unappealing to watchers. <laughs> um, so. Although it is a big deal that SBS has a suspended, I yeah. agree. Um, the the actual impact on people that watch them probably not that much. Yeah, I mean it has changed a little bit. I mean now it's sort of ten minutes of Xi Jinping <laughs> oh, doing okay. things. Ten minutes of America is in chaos, and then <laughs> yes. you know ten minutes of CCP, uh, CCP's are doing great. Uh, the so a lot China. of propaganda, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah pretty well. It's, it's almost propaganda. it's almost it's almost unwatchable. I mean, yeah. uh, I absolutely agree. With yeah. you. It's almost unwatchable, but it is the flagship thing, and it is something that the Chinese state will not be happy about uh, even though no one watches it <laughs> well so it, so it's just another little thorn in the side i suppose happening in australia i'm gonna but interestingly csgtn came out with an announcement says oh we never uh allowed sbs to broadcast this in the first place all oh, right <laughs> oh, that is interesting. But it's still on their website. I mean, this is the thing. They, they can't have it both ways. If you go to the CCTV4 website, they still have his forced confession up there oh. online. You can watch it now if you like. Oh. oh, there it is. Now, but that does raise uh, one final question. I'm going to sort of put this is without notice to you. Right? The relationship, the bilateral relationship between Australia and China has, as we discussed, you know, gone into the sort of deep freeze. A year from now, will it be better or worse? Was all the same. Um, a recent speech by Wang Xining um, at the ACBAC dinner, which actually I was there, um, but then it got posted on the um, Chinese embassy website. I think that signals that China is definitely um, going to a more confrontational approach towards Australia. Yeah, I, I would say worse. So why I don't why I don't agree with the proposition that Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world. He's sending out very strong signals to his subordinates, and the safest thing for them to do in terms of keeping their jobs is to be hawkish, uh, and they will continue to be hawkish. And you know the the West will continue to respond in the way it's been responding. So um, I can only see a downward spiral. Oh, on that cheery note, uh, thanks very much, uh, Yun Jung and Graham Smith, two of the finest ANU has to offer. Thanks for spending a bit of time with us here at Democracy Sausage. It's always a pleasure to have you back. That's the uh, podcast for this uh, week, or at least for this early part of the week. I'll be back later in the week with a Democracy Sausage Extra. So until then, bye for now. 